Hello, this is Pastor Brandon, and I want to thank you for listening to our messages. Unfortunately, you'll notice halfway into this message, somewhere around 37, 38 minutes, it will cut off. Our recording failed us at that point. And so then I will enter recording alone in my office to the best of my ability, redoing the last part of the message. It may feel not quite as natural, and that's because it went from live to me trying to reproduce what had happened. So we really apologize for that. I find it much easier to preach in front of people because then you can you feel what's going on and you're responding to the audience. So the last part I fear is nowhere nowhere near reflecting the heart of what actually happened that night. I hope that you, uh, as you listen, can be encouraged to be real with your God because he forgives you reflexively. Let's go to 2 Samuel chapter 8, please. 2 Samuel 8, God's reflexive forgiveness. That's our title. God's reflexive forgiveness. I'm not certain that we think of God as always having a forgiveness reflex. Meaning, if I sin here, the reflex is forgiveness. If these people do that, the reflex is forgiveness. Whether it's from childhood, our fathers, parents, or uh, teaching, or just the, the nature of humanity to think that God hates us, we often find ourselves living life as if God's reflex is judgment. God's reflex is disappointment. And if we, if we jump through this coop or pray that prayer or, or, or amend our ways in this certain way, then, then he will change his reflex to be, well, now I'm not angry anymore. And maybe it's because that's how we react to people. And maybe that's where it comes from. Um, I wish that my, reflex my natural instinct was forgiveness but that's something that i have to work at i have to choose right and maybe i'm just the sinner in here but i think most of us have to choose to forgive it's not the natural reflex um people push our buttons in a certain way and i reflexively want to prove i'm right justify myself uh show that they're in the wrong <laughs> our reflexes are not the best parts of ourselves always and maybe sometimes this creeps into the way we see God. We're often guilty of making God in our image when he's actually made us in his. So let's not fall into the snare of seeing our father, seeing the son, of seeing the Holy Spirit, the way that we see ourselves or the way that we think he should be seen or think we he shouldn't be seen. Let's... Um, let's look at the story and see how God's knee-jerk reaction to what King David does is forgiveness. Now, with that, when I fail, and I know I'm not alone because this is all over the Bible, sinners tend to run and hide from God. Look at Adam and Eve. They sinned, they ate from the fruit they were not supposed to, and what is their first instinct it's, this is bad, we got to get out of here. So they hide from God in the trees. God comes out and asks them where they are. Where are now, God knows, right? God knows where they are. God knows what they did. God is asking them to come forward. He's asking them to be honest and real with him. 
He's not upset. He's not asking him to come out so he can lash them 14 times and kick them out of the garden. He's asking them to come out because he wants to restore what has been broken. But the humans would rather remain hidden. And even when they come out of the trees, God has to pull out of them what happened. They want to hide it. And it's because they blame each other. The woman! And the woman says, the serpent! And then who knows what the serpent blames it on himself, I guess. But this whole... They wanted to remain hidden. Adam and Eve still hid. They were still hiding. It wasn't me, it was her, it was him, it was them. That's hiding from our sin. Deflecting it from off of ourselves. And then in the next chapter, chapter 4 of Genesis, you see Cain and Abel. And Cain strikes his brother Abel and kills him. And God, in a very, very similar format, the story's parallel. God comes to Cain and says, where is your brother? This is not God saying, hmm, we've misplaced Abel. Somebody help us. This is God giving Cain the chance to come clean, to come forward, to come out of hiding. But Cain decides rather to bury and hide the sin. He says, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Don't make this my responsibility is his point. But it is Cain's responsibility. He did it. And God's giving him the chance to own up to it. But rather Cain hides and says, beats me. And then God, you know, of course, discloses. I knew the whole time, buddy. I was giving you a chance to confess. Your brother's blood cries out to me. What have you done, Cain? What have you done? And we've asked that question of ourselves. We've asked, what have I done? What have I done? What have I done? Usually not right away. It's usually when we've been called out. Or years down the road, when we're tired of running and we're tired of hiding, the question sinks in, what have I been doing? And then, of course, we saw more recently King Saul. King Saul deliberately disobeys God's word through the prophet Samuel. He does not annihilate the Amalekites, but keeps the best products for him and the people. When Samuel comes forth and says, hey, what is this? I thought you were supposed to annihilate their cattle. He says, well, we kept the people. The people wanted to keep the best as a sacrifice to God. The people. So Saul here, hiding from his sin. And actually, he's also running now because he's trying to spin this to be, actually, I I heard God's command, but I thought it would be better if this happened. So I messed up, but now I'm going to try to fix it. I'm hustling to make this look right. And that's when we become expert sinners. We're no longer just hiding in shame, but we're now figuring out ways to make it look like it's better that I did this. So Saul tried to turn this, his mistake into a worship ceremony. No, 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 we, we saved the best because Yahweh deserves the best in worship. And I wonder how much of our life, how much of our actions is really us trying to outrun our mistakes. Because if we stop long enough, our failures crash down upon us and we're aware of our wretchedness. We're aware that we're fallen, we're broken, we're sinners, that we have not held up the standard that we think we are. And so we keep trying to correct. I made this mistake with this person. I'm going to make it work out. I'm going to do this. And we're busying our lives with trying to outrun the sin that's stalking us. 
We're going to see David do this. We're going to see him do this, and it does not get any better. Usually, our trying to outrun sin is just our trying to correct our mistakes through works, through trying to make ourselves better. And in the process, we actually continue to further the sins we committed. So Proverbs 28, 13 says, and this is just kind of going to be a blanket over the whole story. Proverbs 18, uh, no, Proverbs 28, 13 Whoever conceals his transgressions or his sins, whoever conceals his sins will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. All right, King David. So, Pastor Mike, uh, let's see, last week was a youth service, right? So the week before was Pastor Mike. He took us through, through David's rise to the throne. Remember, he had been hunted by Saul for years. Now David finally, Saul's dead, and he rises to the throne that he was anointed to have. We're going to see David's fall now. Um, so in chapter, you guys are in 2 Samuel 8. Um, in chapter 8, we see him continue to expand his kingdom through victories. Chapter 9, we have Mephibosheth, one of the last remaining descendants of King Saul. And... Um, of Jonathan and Saul, the house of Saul. And so David shows kindness to him and invites him to the table. Mephibosheth is lame in both feet. And it's a beautiful picture of the grace of God giving us a seat at the king's table. Well worth your read. And um, then in chapter 10, we have David defeats Ammon in Syria. And so there's this battle. In chapter 11, we're going to see this very ugly sin of David. Chapter 12, we're going to see him confess his sin. Chapter 13, we're going to see the consequences of his sin. And chapter 14, the consequences continue. And actually, the rest of the book is really uh, the collapse of everything that happens as a result of David's sin. So let's get into it in chapter 11, shall we? In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab, or Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It just kind of lingers there. The text does not explain why this is a problem. It just sets up the scene. Israel is out at battle. The king is in his palace. And what happens next is not good. But why is David at home in the palace? Why is he not with the troops? We've seen he's a warrior all his life. He's always with the troops. What's he doing? Were there um, um, policies he had to oversee as the king of the nation? Was he getting old? And were his advisors telling him, David, you don't have the back you used to have. Maybe you shouldn't go out to battle. Just come in at the glory when we clean up the enemy and take the crown. Why is David, is he bored? Is David just in a midlife crisis? Is he depressed and doesn't really find the point of getting out of bed? What is he doing? We don't know. It doesn't say, but we see that he remains behind. Now it happened in verse 2 that late one afternoon, when David arose from his couch, late one afternoon he rises from his couch, and was walking on the roof of the king's house, that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. 
And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Uriah the Hittite, he is one of David's mighty men of valor. He has a short list of 30 amazing soldiers that he can count on. In, in, it's basically like your special ops, the Navy SEALs. Uriah is one of these. He's one of David's special forces. So he is a special person in David's place, in David's kingdom. And so we're setting up the scene now that this is not just some random woman from some random man's house. This is very personal in David's kingdom. And in verse 4, David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab. Send me Uriah the Hittite. Remember, Joab is on the battlefield. Uriah, one of his special ops, is on the battlefield. Call him out of battle and bring him to me, is the message. This must be urgent, Uriah is thinking. What's going on? So Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, well done. I can see the pat on the back. Well done. Go down to your house and wash your feet. In other words, you deserve a good shower, a hot meal. Go and watch a Netflix show and then get back to the battle. Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. Wow. So now he's giving, being given gifts. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. Uriah doesn't go to his house, doesn't relax, doesn't get the reward he was told he deserves. He stays with the servants of the king. And in verse 10, when they, who's they? The servants. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, My son, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? And Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, tents, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go down to my house and eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. What is Uriah saying? Is he trying to show that date to David, I am too good of a servant to betray the armies of Israel. I'm too loyal, David. Is this his moment to show his loyalty? I will not do anything like that. I need to go back with my bros. I need to go back on the front lines. We're, we're brothers in combat. We're a band of brothers. I got to get back there. Is, is that what he's trying to say? It could seem so on the surface. But when you look at this text, it's very possible that Uriah is saying things that text cannot convey. 
You and I know that moment when you get a text message or something in writing, an email, and you can't quite discern the tone of it, and you guess wrongly. What is the tone of this text? We see it in writing, but how was this said? I want to show you something. If you look at verse 3, we see that when David first saw Bathsheba uh, shaving, showering, whatever, bathing on uh, all the above on the roof, um, it said that David sent, David sent and inquired. The king doesn't just go down to this house. He sent a messenger. Okay. Now in verse 4, so David sent messengers and took her. So now we've had a second dispatch of servants. Verse 5, the woman conceived, and how did she tell him? And she sent and told David. Sent means she sent someone to tell David, I am pregnant. Verse 6, so David sent word to Joab. Another messenger being deployed. And then look at verse 9. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. Okay. This is a small mountain. (laughs) I don't think I need to illustrate too graphically what can happen when you have this many messengers involved in a scandal. A high class scandal. It's easy for us to just assume, right, that David is taking charge and he's doing all this and it's a secret between him and Bathsheba. But there are at least, we don't know how many messengers are involved in each one or if it's the same one, but there are one, two, three, four times in which David is sending messengers back and forth as communicators. Now, now, what? and you also don't need to watch Downton Abbey to know what servants do in their free time while they work. What are they, they're talking, right, about their lords and their masters. They're gossiping. They're, hey, do you notice the king's a bit moody when he went in and delivered the food? Yeah. Do you know what he sent Johnny to go say to the house of Uriah the Hittite? Yeah. I heard he sent me the other day, uh, to, 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 to Joab and I brought Uriah back. And then another one says, yeah, I saw a servant come in from Bathsheba's house and he looked really stone-faced. And then Johnny said that he talked to her and she said that she was pregnant and like everything's going around, right? The entire, okay, we would be naive to assume that the entire palace did not know what was going on. The entire palace knows the king has just had some fun. Could you imagine if that got in the news today, but from our, yeah. Okay. So don't miss the last piece. Where does Uriah spend the night? With the servants quarters. Oh, ho, ho. wow. Yeah. You got, you got to, you probably don't have to get up too early to get this one by Uriah, right? He's sensing there's a lot of talk. Someone's probably said, Hey dude, you know what just happened. So when Uriah now talks to David, although initially it sounds like he's just being a faithful, loyal servant, and though he is that, I might hear a lot of knives being jabbed at David in these comments. So read this again, knowing or assuming that Uriah knows what happened. So in verse 11, 
Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. You can see him looking around at the palace, right? Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife as you live? I, and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. In other words, David, you have done all of this, but I will not do it. Uriah is telling him, I know what you did. And this is when David realizes, I have to take care of this. So in verse 12, David said to Uriah, I wonder how good his poker face is. Because if Uriah is saying this and I'm reading between the lines like, oh, this is not, this is uncomfortable. You got to have a good poker face to show you have no clue what he's saying. So David's probably just like, ah, you're such a great loyal servant. Why don't you come and remain here today also? And tomorrow I'll send you back to the front lines. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank. And David made sure that the servants never let the cup run out, right? And it's always topped off. So that he made him drunk. And in the evening, when he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. That there may suggest that Uriah definitely knows, because he's... He's drunk and he's still making the decision. He's doing the unnatural thing of sleeping with the servants rather than going to his house. It must be something determined in his heart that he will not let David get away with this. He will not make it, he will not give David the easy out by sleeping with his wife. So now David is entirely frustrated. So in the morning, verse 14, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. Now, when a letter wrote a message, when a king wrote a message, he would seal it with his signet ring, right? There would be wax closing the message with his seal upon it. So that way, Joab would know when he received the letter whether or not he was the first person to see the letter. Because if the seal was broken, he would know that the king's mail has been tampered with, which would, of course would be off with your head. So there's some pretty good confidence that Uriah has no clue what he's carrying. And this is the irony. This is great storytelling here. So Uriah's carrying this message. In the letter, David wrote... Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him. Tell everyone else to retreat. Don't let Uriah know that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. So now another messenger is showing up. And he instructed the messenger, Joab's telling the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises, and if he says to you, why did you get so near to the city to fight? Did you not know they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubbesheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thesbes? Why did you go so near to the wall? So, so if he gets that angry, then you shall say, um, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. Now, 
presuming that kind of scene happened, the king would then sit down and, oh. But these are not private engagements, right? The king deals with kingdom stuff with his elders, with um, people that are asking for judgment. This is open court. This is the king dealing with his business. How do you wear your face in front of the rest of the kingdom? So the messenger went, verse 22, and came and told David all that Joab has sent him to do, to tell. The messenger said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. David said to the messenger, thus shall you say to Joab, do not let this matter trouble you for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. Does Joab know what's going on? Surely he's reading between the lines. Encourage him. It must be so disheartening to know that you sent someone to his death by assigning him to that certain place in the war. The king's telling him, don't feel bad about it. Move on. You did my will. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, don't you just love how the narrator here is making it very clear? He's not willing to call her Bathsheba. He's calling her twice, the wife of another man. Right? When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Like, that's very redundant. Your English teacher would probably circle one of those and say, all right, you already said that. The narrator is saying, he's trying to hammer it into your subconscious that David did something very wrong. He took something that wasn't his. And when the mourning was over, uh, that's the weeping period, not the morning, the the a.m., I mean, when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. It's great storytelling. The way this whole thing's structured, just that final line, our narrator tells us, the thing that David had done displeased Yahweh. You're reading this, and you're like, ah, wow, whoa. And you're thinking, but David's a hero. He's one of the best kings of Israel. Maybe this is okay. I don't, how's this going to turn out? Then, nope, Yahweh treats him like everybody else. You can't do that. You're not really the king, David. You're the prince. I'm the king. You still obey my orders. And to the extent that you do what I desire, you're a good king. The moment you do what your heart desires, assuming it's not in line with my desires, then you are no longer in favor. It's going to displease me. So even David, the man after God's own heart, is susceptible to doing wrong. What does David do about it? So here, here, David commits adultery. He takes someone else's wife, and when he finds out she's pregnant, he's already sinned. But what does he do? He hides and runs from his sin, doesn't he? He's like, oh, I messed up. Let's clean this up. Right? Isn't that so natural to think? I messed up. I want to clean this up. So David tries to make it look like Uriah went to his house and he had sex with Bathsheba and now she's pregnant because he went home. Seems innocent enough. I just want to clean this up. No one's ever going to find out. But then things get messy, right? Uriah refuses. He seems to be in the know of what has happened. And now David's trying, now this is where he's running too hard. He's trying to outrun his sin. He's trying to make sure nobody finds out. So now I got to kill Uriah, make it look like an accident so that nobody finds out. Would David have ever confessed? Would he have ever fessed up? 
we do know is that the prophet Nathan comes to speak to him. This is the danger, friends, about reading the Bible. This is the danger about hearing it preached. You can read it and you can look for the things that you like. When you hear it preached, you have no, you have no way to control what I'm about to say. I have all the, no, not all the power, but I have a lot. <laughs> Until you throw tomatoes, at least. Um, no, but the, the point, obviously, I'm saying is you, you don't know. Sometimes it comes out of nowhere. The two by four hits you and you're like, it's dang, yeah, yeah. The spoken word of God. That's what prophecy is. It's the spoken word of God. That's why you call the people prophets. Nathan is going to speak the word of God to David. And when it's spoken, look out. It's a lion unleashed. And Yahweh sent Nathan to David. He came to him. This is chapter 12. He came to him and said to him, David, do you have a moment? All right, sit down. I have a story for you. There's an issue in the kingdom that's kind of been gnawing at me, and I want to see what your wise advice would say about this. It's the backstory. Now you hear the story. There were two men in a certain city, and one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and with his children. It's kind of like the house pet. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man. So to the other man, there came a traveler to the rich man. And he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. So what did he do? He took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Now, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, As Yahweh lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. And the courage for Nathan to say what comes next, I will never understand. Nathan said to David, you are the man. You have to be pretty confident that your life is in order for death. (laughs) To come to the king and to set a trap through a story. And then confront him point blank. You have to have pretty good confidence in your relationship with the king. That or be totally fine with dying for saying this. So say it. But I think Nathan was confident that he knew the true heart of David. That he is, as God called him in 1 Samuel, a man after my own heart. He was confident that David would see his error and repent. Nathan confronts him. You are the man. David, you're the rich man who had all the sheep. And you took one poor man's little sheep because you didn't want to spare one of your many to feed this traveler. David said, this man deserves to die and repay fourfold. 
which was in the law. It's, it's a Exodus 22. If, if, if something happens to someone's sheep and it was your fault, you're supposed to restore it fourfold. So David was just quoting the law. He's the king. He knows this. This guy should die. And before he dies, repay it fourfold. You're the man, David. So Nathan continues, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, if this wasn't enough, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of Yahweh to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, and this, by the way, this sentence summarizes the rest of Second Samuel. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. So thus says Yahweh, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, out of your own house. And I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor. And he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the son. For you did this thing secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. So the king who can behead Nathan and make sure that none of this ever has to come about, or at least he can ignore it or say, no one talks to me this way. Here's an example and hold the head up to the crowds. That king who can do that says instead in verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. Six simple words. I have sinned against the Lord. Or in Hebrew, you know, Yahweh's, the Lord is Yahweh. So five words, however you want to count it. I have sinned against Yahweh. That's it. That's what he said. And Nathan responds. Here's where you see God's reflexive forgiveness. Nathan said to David, Yahweh also has put away your sins, your sin. You shall not die. This man deserves to die. I have sinned, Nathan says. Yahweh has put away your sin. You shall not die. This is the Old Testament, friends. Isn't there supposed to be a sacrifice? Isn't there supposed to be this whole religious ceremony and this ritual? Isn't David supposed to do these prescribed things to get forgiveness? You would think, the way we talk about the Old Testament, you would think. Nope. This is like Jesus meeting the woman caught in adultery. Same sin, by the way. And John 8 tells those that want to kill her, get away. She does not deserve to die. Looks at her lifts her up and says, where are your accusers? They're nowhere, my Lord. 
Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. This is what David hears. I don't condemn you. I've put your sin away from you. But, but we, we, we get the story of Jesus and the adulterous woman because that's the New Testament. The gospel of grace has come. But David, surely David's supposed to pay for this, right? Surely David's supposed to earn his forgiveness. No. We see the same God. The same God who's in the New Testament and the Old Testament and here before David because David confesses that he has sinned against Yahweh, Yahweh reflexively forgives him. The minute David says it, Nathan confirms it. Yahweh has put your sin away, which by the way, he's put your sin away. Go look it up in the Hebrew. It's the exact same phrase used in Exodus 12 when it says that God will pass over the houses of Israel when the angel of death came. And the Passover, of course, celebrating their freedom from Egypt. And that's the meal in which Jesus dies for our sins as the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Passover. God has passed over David's sin because he said, I have sinned. Now, consequences do come. Remember David said the law, he quotes the law that you shall restore fourfold a lamb that you take. David's going to have to pay fourfold. He's forgiven though before he does that. And when, the thing I want to see, I want to show us in that is he does not, David does not pay for his sins in order to receive forgiveness. He is forgiven. He's going to pay for his sins because sin demands payment, not God. You sin, God is not like a vending machine. I hit the wrong button and now I ate my money and I'm going to suffer for it. It's the sin that hurts us, not God. And there's, there's a really good saying which summarizes this. We are not punished for our sins, but by our sins. God is not going to look at David and say, all right, I have to do these four things to you. Rather, he says, these four things are going to happen because when you take someone's wife and sleep with them and kill their husband, when the king does that, there will be natural consequences in the kingdom. Let alone at your household where you have spoiled princes who run around doing whatever they want, seeking after their hedonistic, sensual appetites. So David's forgiven. But here are, here's how he's going to pay fourfold. We're going to see one right away. Verse 14. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned Yahweh, the child who is born to you shall die. And Nathan went to his house. Mike dropped. He'll die. I'm gone. So this baby that's growing in Bathsheba is going to die. That's what the next, that's what the rest of chapter 12 is about. David prays that it doesn't happen, but it happens. Second, Remember, he pays fourfold. So first, the baby dies. Second is chapter 13. Amnon, David's firstborn son, rapes his sister Tamar. Now, this sister is not his direct sister. It's, it's like a half-sister. Um, David's daughter, but from a mother that's different than Amnon. And what happens is, Amnon loves Tamar. And he is sickly lusting for her. So he pretends to be sick. 
so sick that Dad has to come down and see him. Dad, I would feel much better if you would send Tamar to bake her special cookies for me. Tamar apparently was a pretty good baker. And so David agrees, sends her down to make him some food. And when she brings it to his bedchamber, he dismisses the servants, pulls her into bed, and rapes her. And the tragedy of this is that she's pleading that at least ask our father, maybe he will give, a, give, you to, give me to you in marriage. At least ask our father. But he wouldn't. And he abused her and defiled her. And see, in this time, this would now make Tamar completely unable to be married. Which would have been tragic for King David as well, who would have used his daughters to uh, arrange a marriage with another nation as a sort of trade agreement. That's what kings did back then. You married your daughters off to other princes, and that would cause alliances and trade agreements. But now David can't do that. And if she had already been betrothed, now they have to call that off, which puts David in an awkward spot. Now, when David hears about this, you read in chapter 13, verse 21, when King David heard all of these things, he was very angry. But did nothing. Now that's implied. There's a footnote in your Bible which will then say the Dead Sea Scrolls and the Septuagint. So these are um, translations or copies. Um, Dead Sea Scrolls would be copies. The Septuagint would be a translation into Greek that would have been around during the time of Jesus. It says that they add this but he would not punish his son Ammon because he loved him since he was his firstborn. But perhaps David didn't do anything because he knew he couldn't. What can he say? What can he do? However he punishes Amnon, Amnon would rightly respond, Look who's talking. David is guilty of the same sin. Whether or not he raped Bathsheba is not mentioned, but he definitely had a sexual relationship that was not proper. And now Amnon does the same. What can David say when he's broken the same law? So David does nothing. But Tamar's brother, Absalom, he has something to do with this. He has something to say. So you've seen the first of the fourfold consequences. The child dies. Second, Amnon rapes Tamar in chapter 13. Then we see in chapter 13, verse 23, Absalom murders Ammon. And that's the third of the fourfold consequences. So Absalom waits he waits and he gets his perfect opportunity and he decides at his country estate to let everybody come and celebrate such a great year of abundance. They're going to shear the sheep and he needs help and they want to celebrate and thank God for all of this. So he proposes this to his father, King David. Please let all your sons and you yourself come to this. 
David declines but gives permission for the other sons to go. And Absalom has henchmen kill Amnon during the festival. Of course, all the other princes thought that this was a coup to take all of them out, and they run in terror. And this puts a wedge, this drives a distance between David and his son Absalom, which will set up the next and final consequence, which will be in next week's passage. So, first, the child dies. Second, Amnon rapes Tamar. Third, Absalom murders Amnon. And fourth, Absalom rebels against his father and takes the throne. But before we close this off, I want to return to 12 verse 13 when David says to Nathan, I have sinned against Yahweh. And Nathan replies to David, Yahweh has passed over your sins. You shall not die. I have sinned against Yahweh. This confession, David beautifully elaborates in Psalm 51, a psalm which he wrote as a result of his sin being exposed. And so I'd like to finish this message by going to Psalm 51 and looking at this beautiful prayer in which many of us have found comfort in. The title of Psalm 51 reads, To the choir master, so it's meant to be sung, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. And so it begins. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. In the first two verses, we have the first step of confession. David shows up. Confession is that moment when we stop running long enough for our sins to catch up to us. When we stop hiding and choose instead to show up to our sins. Confession is where we let it all happen. It's a pause. It's a break. And David shows up and he begins by crying for mercy. Have mercy on me. Oh God, just like the tax collector in Luke chapter, I think it's 17, it might be 18, where the tax collector prays, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Eastern Orthodox Church has a prayer which they call the Jesus Prayer in which they pray, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me a sinner. And so we, when we confess, we pray with David, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. And then in verse three, David names his, that he's a sinner. He admits that God is in the right and he is in the wrong 
for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. David admits, it's against you I have sinned so that you may be justified and blameless in your judgment. You see, excellent sinners are excellent at self-justification. We come up with so many reasons for the things that we've done. We are really good at justifying ourselves. But here, David refuses that path and admits that God is just and he is in the wrong. This is not always beautiful. We squirm at moments like this when we have to confront the fact that we are in the wrong. We have to put down our defenses. But God delights in truth in the inward being. And if we want his truth to come deep within us, we must open ourselves up. And so third, we show up. We admit our sin. And third, we seek renewal in verse 7. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Purge me, clean me, wash me, create in me a clean heart, renew a right spirit, restore to me, uphold me, confession is not just erase my sins, but it's I want to be made new. It's not just clean me, but it's make me whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart. Restore the joy of your salvation. Confession is letting go of an enormous burden so that God can come in and resurrect us out of our death. confession isn't just, I'm sorry. It's also change. It comes with an action plan, which David does in verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Lord, Open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And now we see why God does not demand a sacrifice of David. God wants from David sorrow, to feel sorry for his sins, that the sin shatters him. We, in confession, when we allow the sin to create sorrow within us, when we're sorry for what we've done, when we're crushed and shattered, we become the sacrifice. It's not about killing the animal, but it's about us being killed in our confession so that we are identified with Christ on the cross and we are raised to newness of life with him. This is what it looks like to confess that we become the sacrifice, that we offer ourselves to God. And so David shows up. He admits his wrong. He seeks renewal. He has an action plan. This is how we confess our sins. And so confession, again, is this time when we are able to stop. We stop running, trying to outrun our sins. We stop hiding. We show up. It all comes crashing down. And yes, it's uncomfortable. It's why a lot of churches don't like to have sin mentioned or confession mentioned in the service. But it is so important. This is one of those things that causes Christians to be different from conventional cultures that we are aware of our shortcomings and we are not afraid to admit them because we have a God who is reflexive in forgiveness. And until we can practice confessing, we will never see his reflexive forgiveness. And we will perpetuate the message of a reflexive, angry, and disappointed God. And so before we take communion tonight, we are going to spend some time in confession. So while the worship team plays, we will go and get the communion at the end of each aisle as normal. But don't take it out of habit. Don't take it until we gather together again and I will lead us in some confession and then we will take the body and the blood of Christ and thank him for our forgiveness. I will now read a prayer from Romans chapter 3. You'll recognize it. And then we'll have a moment of silence in which we pause to let our sins catch up with us and we confess them before God. And then I'll lead us as we take the communion, which symbolizes our forgiveness. God, none is righteous. No, not one. I do not understand I do not seek for God. I have turned aside. I have become worthless. I do not do good. My throat is an open grave. I use my tongue to deceive. The venom of asps is under my lips. My mouth is full of curses and bitterness. My feet are swift to shed blood, and in my paths are ruin and misery. 
and the way of peace I have not known. There is no fear of God before my eyes. Let us take a moment to confess our sins to God. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed. By what we have done and by what we have left undone, we have not loved you with our whole heart. We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and humbly repent. For the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us. That we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Let us now take the bread and the blood of Christ. And now as 1 John 1.9 says, He, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So stand in the forgiveness of God. We confessed in death, but now we rise in His resurrection and go forth this week walking in the reflexive forgiveness of our good God. Not afraid to confess when we are wrong because he reflexively forgives us. And as we practice such, may we share such reflexive forgiveness with the community around us.